Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. You have probably heard that the Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act. Despite the name, this is the most important and possibly only climate legislation likely to be made law in this crucial decade. So we're going to bring you something different today. The Atlantic's Robinson Meyer has been tracking every provision in the bill. And we're going to walk through the climate parts of the Inflation Reduction Act. What made it into the final text? Will these strategies work to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? And what else will it change along the way? That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The Inflation Reduction Act somehow, some way made it through the Senate, garnering the support it needed from every single Democrat. As we stare down the effects of global warming, this is really the legislative window to pass something that could put the U.S. onto a different emissions trajectory. And now, assuming the bill works as intended, we may be on that new path soon. Given what a milestone this is, and that it's likely to be the only major climate legislation passed in the U.S. in this first quarter of the 21st century, we really wanted to know what was in the bill. I'm talking the chapter and verse allocations of dollars. And I happen to know that Robinson Meyer of the Atlantic has been doing that exact research. So we're going to do something we basically never do on this show. And we're going to walk through the mechanisms that we hope will reduce American emissions by 40% below 20, 2005's levels by 2030. Welcome, Robinson Meyer, staff writer at the Atlantic covering the climate. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for having me, Alexis. I'm so excited to be here and to do this uh, this, this kind of crazy thing. Yeah. So a couple of preliminary things before we get into the actual policies. How did Just remind people how this got out of the Senate again, given the Republican filibuster tactics. Yeah, absolutely. So this legislation was passed by a process called budget reconciliation, which allows uh, the party in control of the Senate to pass one piece of legislation, about one piece of legislation every fiscal year through a simple majority. Mm. Um, they don't have to overcome the filibuster. They only have to pass it through with, with 50 votes plus one. Um, but the key thing is that every provision in any legislation like that can only affect the budget, basically. And so you can't... Um, you know, they, they couldn't pass a new, say, requirement for... Uh, how they, they couldn't, for instance, let's say uh, 
uh, pass uh, marriage equality through reconciliation because it doesn't really affect the the bottom line of the federal budget. What they can pass are kind of new tax credits, new spending, new allocation. They can say, we're going to give money to any organization like this if it is doing this kind of cause. So um, they... But they only get one. So that's they why only get one. They only get one. Like, and that's right. why there has been so much... Um, so much consternation because basically the party knew it was only going to be able to get this one piece of legislation through and they've been fighting for the past 18 months essentially about what exactly will go in that legislation and it wound up that climate uh, became and energy became one of the in fact the kind of the biggest outlay from the legislation uh, of of any that could have been in there. And we'll probably do future shows on some of the other components of this bill, you know, prescription drug reform and the ACA subsidies. There's, you know, funding for the IRS. There's a there's a bunch of other things. But how significant is this as an American climate bill making it through the Senate specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the first piece of comprehensive climate legislation, you know, economy wide action that is defensively at the scale of the problem, um, if not yet enough. This is the first piece of legislation like that to ever pass the Senate. And since 1992, the Senate has really never gotten a climate bill through. And in fact, what's happened since then is that every other part of the global climate (laughs) action policy framework from state and local laws, from California's really aggressive climate laws to how the Paris Agreement is written at the word level has had to accommodate the fact that you could not get climate policy through the Senate. And so the fact that they've passed this bill is is actually a new era. I mean, it's, it's used a lot, but this is a new era in global climate policy because for the first time since Bill Clinton took office, um, really since the first time in my lifetime, um, the U.S. is going to have some of the most aggressive climate policy in the world and not be a laggard that's holding back behind other countries. Hmm. So this thing, because of all the jockeying that was occurring, because we could, <laughs> Democrats could only get one bill through, yes. you know, the overall size of the climate investment seemed, you know, shrank from Build Back Better. But it seems like, you know, when you look at the emissions reduction effect, it's almost all retained. So it's basically American climate policy actually did kind of make it through the Senate, right, even though there's less money going into it? Yeah, exactly. The, so the, the original Build Back Better was about $500 billion, and this is $369 billion. So programs got dropped. But if you look at what the emissions models say, um, the House version of Build Back Better, I think, was projected to cut emissions by about 43% below their all-time high um, by 2030. This bill is projected, the kind of median estimate is 40%. So the most emissions-reducing policies got through the gate here. That's interesting. Um, Very last thing, then we're getting into it. It has to get through the House, right, and then has to be signed by uh, President Biden. But that seems like it's going to happen, right? I mean, this would, I don't want to, like, say all climate people out there should be <laughs> celebrating, like, just yet in the streets. But uh, it's this seems like a, a feasible path. Oh, Alexis, I developed a very elaborate uh a system of euphemism to refer to the possibility that this bill could get through because I was so nervous. Um, But at this point, pending calamity, I mean, pending several House members uh, uh, (laughs) dying, literally, I think this bill is is guaranteed for passage. Mm. Um, 
and then it's guaranteed to be signed by by Joe Biden. And and the two the two caucuses in the House among Democrats who were kind of the most skeptical of the bill or could have been the most skeptical that, you know, the House Progressive Caucus for not going far enough. And then this moderate set of um, House members from kind of high tax blue states that had wanted to see an increase in the basically a lower taxes for a certain subset of homeowners in their states. They have both kind of signaled that they know this is their only chance and they're, they're going to support the bill. Yeah. We're talking about the massive climate change bill that we think is going to get through the House and signed by President Biden. We're joined by Robinson Meyer, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the newsletter, The Weekly Planet. We would like to hear from you. What questions do you have about this bill as we get into its specifics for this hour? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. All right, here we go. <laughs> here we go. I'm cracking my knuckles. Yes, that's right. Same, same. Section 13101. Um, we're talking about re- extending renewable tax credits to 2025. What is what does this mean? Uh, what does it what does it do? And the listeners should know we are really starting. This is the first section. Everything before Section 13101 is about health care policy or tax policy. We are starting at the top of climate policy. Okay, so this extends the renewable tax credit. So historically. Um, almost all climate policy in the U.S. has been done through tax credits and has been done through this messy set of technology-specific tax credits. Mm. So, for instance, um, you could take an investment tax credit, which at its max covered about 30% of the cost of putting in a facility for solar, wind, geothermal, solar thermal, which is the big solar installations like Avampa with the mirrors. You see them when you fly in to the Bay Area. Um, you could take a 30% tax credit for that, or you could take a per kilowatt hour production tax credit for other technologies, such as wind, geothermal, biomass. The thing about this, these tax credits is you had to enumerate the technology in that you wanted to subsidize in the law. Hmm. They also like fluxed over time. They went down, they went up, kind of depending on who controlled Congress and who had negotiating power. This provision extends them to 2025. It... Um, boosts them up to their highest level, assuming that the the developer or the installer meets uh, what are called the prevailing wage and apprenticeship requirements, which mm-hmm. basically means that they pay a, uh, a union wage. Um, and it boosts those tax credits for certain, um, if, if they meet certain criteria, beyond the 30% or beyond the 1.5 cent per kilowatt, our production subsidy. So, if you're in a uh, if you're in a town that used to have a coal plant or a coal mine, there's a boost. They're if calling this in, an energy community. An right? energy community, exactly. Yeah. If you're in a census tract near a brownfield site, so a decommissioned industrial plant, you get a boost. Um, if you meet certain st- requirements for a certain percentage of your steel and cement in the plant coming from domestic producers, you get a boost. So this basically takes the existing renewable uh, energy subsidy system. It boosts it up to its highest level ever. It gives even more bonuses if you meet certain standards that Democrats want to hit around union wage or domestic production. Um, and it extends it till 2025. And later we will talk about what happens after 2025. <laughs> but that's what Section 13101 does. All right. 13 
One or two, this extends uh, existing investment tax credits. Mostly this is to support like business energy investment, right? Like heat pumps and fuel cells and and batteries, things like that, right? Yeah, exactly. This is kind of this like catch-all investment tax credit for like if you put rooftop solar on the top of your business or if you install a heat pump or if you install a battery in your business, um, this this boosts them all. And and it like this will become a very – uh, this will become a refrain. You know, the, the way that it works is basically if you hit, uh, it, it, it's 6% kind of, if you meet no other requirements, if you install a heat pump in your business, it's 6%. Um, if you hit these union wage requirements, it's 30%. It's a 30% subsidy rather than a 6% subsidy. <laughs> and it has all the same bonuses that we just talked about that we're going to get really familiar with. If you're in a brownfield site, if you're in a coal community, um, if you are kind of in a environmental justice uh, community. And those basically reflect the politics that go into this bill, right? I mean, you've got the prevailing wage requirements to help you know, garner union support, and you have some of these brownfield and sort of energy community requirements to help bring environmental justice folks into the fold, right? Yeah, exactly. I think what you are seeing is the result of the coalition the Democrats had to put together, which is these ex-energy communities, like places that are already experiencing the the backside of the energy transition because they were in a coal plant, you know, they were in a town dependent on the coal industry and it's already shut down, or they're in a town that's been really affected by the negative effects of, of you know, fossil fuel pollution. Yeah. We're talking about the climate change bill. We are going through it section by section because this is the climate legislation that will structure what the United States economy uh, does to decarbonize uh, in the near to medium term future. We're joined by Robinson Meyer, staff writer and author of the newsletter, The Weekly Planet. Uh, He's at The Atlantic, of course. And we're going to take some of your questions about this bill. Uh, The number is 866-733-6786. We'll get to some of those after the break as we keep working through this. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're going through the provisions of the climate bill that made it out of the Senate this weekend. Joined by Robinson Meyer, staff writer at The Atlantic, author of the newsletter, The Weekly Planet. We are going through, you know, step by step here. And I want to get to the end of this first section. Then we're going to get to some uh, questions from callers. I mean, the reason we're doing this is that so often when we do climate shows, 
we think like, well, you know, it's all bad news. You know, the things aren't happening. Things aren't getting passed. These are policies we we're not going to implement because things couldn't get through. The senator couldn't uh, build a build a coalition at the national level. And these are the things that seem like they're actually going to happen. So let's go to section. 13103, this increases the credit for uh, solar and wind in low-income communities. Yeah, basically, so if, if this is kind of a community solar provision, so um, if, you, if you build uh, uh, solar or wind facilities, um, and it's, I mean, exactly what it says on the tent, in low-income communities, it, it boosts the, the subsidy that you would otherwise get. Got it. Um, this is an interesting one. 13104, this is a carbon capture and removal uh, segment of this bill. Yeah, and I think this is one of the biggest planks of U.S. policy that uh, could come out of this bill. So this creates, this amends a tax credit that's already existed. The wonky name for it is 45Q, because it is (laughs) subsection 45Q of the tax code. Um, And it goes till 2033. So it's going to go through the whole lifespan of this bill. What it does is it pays facilities, that's a factory um, or a power plant, to capture carbon and sequester it, keep it from entering the atmosphere before it's released out of a smokestack. And at the same time, it creates huge new subsidies for a different kind of facility, a direct air capture facility. So these are large industrial-scale facilities. There are only two in the world right now, I think, um, that capture the open air <laughs> and right. clean the clar- carbon out of it. Um, it creates a new subsidy for those facilities. It basically pays them to do that work if they are in the United States. So hmm. uh, it pays basically a power plant for every ton of carbon that it collects. Um, if it injects it directly into the ground, it pays $85 a ton. If it um, uses that carbon to do something such as uh, put into soft drinks, actually, um, <laughs> It pays $60 a ton. Also, and I would say this is the most controversial part of this policy, if you use this that carbon to explore for more oil, which you which can be done by injecting it into the ground, it also pays $60 a ton. The huh. big, big numbers here are for direct air capture facilities that are cleaning the open air. These are the kind of, I mean, these are the science fiction air right. scrubbers, right? Um, the, the government will now pay you $180 a ton if you capture carbon from the air and inject it into the ground. Um, that is approaching, that's not the, the full cost yet of, of doing that, kind of if you, if you were to do it at cost, but it's getting there. Mm-hmm. And if you capture carbon in the atmosphere and then use it to do something, like you put it to an industrial use or you inject it into the ground to drill for more oil, uh, the government pays you $130 a ton. And again, if you, if you actually don't meet the wage requirements, the union wage requirements, all those numbers that I just went over are slashed by half. Got it. Um, here we see another trade-off. Uh, Section 13105 is nuclear plant subsidy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what this plant does, what this um, subsidy does is there's been a lot of attention lately on basically uh, you know, we're going to have a low, if, if we want a low carbon, a zero carbon electricity grid. Um, as is famously known, wind and solar. The sun doesn't shine all day and the wind doesn't blow all the time. You can predict them and you can install batteries, as California is doing. But it does seem like we're going to need some firm power, some you know, 10 or 20 percent of all electricity production that is just there. It is the baseload. Um, and for right now, our existing nuclear fleet is the cheapest way to provide that. 
And so this is a new subsidy. It pays uh, 0.3 cents per kilowatt hour times this insane modifier that we're not going to get into. Um, <laughs> for every kilowatt hour, every unit of electricity that an existing plant creates. And it runs all the way till 2032. So what this is meant to do is keep those existing, you know, safe nuclear plants online um, until for at least a decade as we get better at producing zero carbon electricity from other means, that means they won't necessarily need to be open. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think for for people, just to, to draw out the reasoning here, I think, for, for why this sort of thing got included is that, you know, if you've built a plant for a long time, the operating, you know, all of that capital outlay has already sort of been a- accounted for. And so you're just talking about the operating cost. So even though new nuclear power would be fairly expensive to build, probably more expensive than uh, renewable alternatives, the older nuclear power is now this this fairly cheap uh, source of electricity. Exactly. And what we've seen, too, is in states like New York, when they close down existing nuclear reactors like Indian Point, you know, most of that electricity capacity is filled in by natural gas. It is not filled in by renewables. And so... And natural gas, of course, is a fossil fuel. It contributes carbon to the atmosphere. It's the opposite of where we, what we want to do. And so the idea is we want to keep those plants open um, since they are, since we paid off the investments and it's the cheapest way to uh, reduce emissions for yeah. now. Um, before we get into the next section on clean fuels, I, I want to get to a couple uh, quick questions here from callers. Damien in Walnut Creek. Welcome to the show, Damien. Oh, hi there. Can you hear me? Yep, sure can. Go ahead. Okay, great. Hi, good morning. My question is, and I may, may, you may address this later on, but how does the increasing land grants to fossil fuels leasing um, help the climate emissions goal? Thank you. Right. Uh, well, it probably doesn't, uh, except for that. <laughs> um, Rob, uh, why don't you take that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I, I, so, of course, this, this bill was a compromise between Democrats in the Senate, uh, many of whom care about climate change a lot, and Joe Manchin, who purports to care about climate change, but also represents a fossil fuel state. And I'd say one of the biggest concessions in the bill is that for every uh, parcel of federal land that the government leases to a renewable developer, so that's or federal offshore property for like an offshore wind installation, it has to offer in the same year um, a parcel and it's not exactly one-to-one, but it's a parcel for oil and gas extraction. Um, this has been, I would say, among the most controversial parts of the bill. And as the caller says, as Damien says, um, <laughs> it doesn't contribute to climate emissions. It is a straight-up compromise that, uh, that, that Democrats took because they, ne- they thought they would get a deal. What I'd say is a few things. The first is that um, basically every model says that this bill is going to reduce emissions at least five times more than it increases them. Um, and so if you look at net, we are going to lower emissions far more than we would otherwise. Um, the second thing is the bill at the same time, and this has been a little overlooked, increases the royalty rate for oil extraction. So basically, if you are on a federal lease and extracting oil, you have to pay more money to the government for every barrel of oil you take out or, or or amount of natural gas than you would have before this bill, that should actually hold down some of the production from federal land more than it would have otherwise. You know, that's part of this deal. The last thing is, the, the third thing is, um, not all land that is leased, 
under the law, the government only must offer these leases to oil companies. It doesn't have to sell them. This is not like there is going to be one acre of producing of oil production for every acre of solar. This is the government just has to go through the motions. And what we've seen historically is that federal land is just, you know, oil companies are buying it. In some cases, they're leasing it, but they are not producing from it. And they're even less likely to produce from it now that the royalty rate is up. And finally, <laughs> um, uh, this, uh, uh, I, I've forgotten what I was going to say, but... Um, I think that was a pretty good yeah, answer, Yeah, I mean, Damien. that's a pretty good answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, let's, uh, uh, let's go one, uh, one more sort of setup thing here before we, we keep going on the bill. Dan in Santa Clara. Uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I do appreciate the deep dive and all the intricacies and nuances, but I would like a, uh, a nice little sandwich to offer my kids in terms of is this enough? Mm-hmm. How far does this bill take the United States towards being able to meet our targets of, what is it, reducing by a certain amount so we only hit 1.5 degrees Celsius worldwide? Thank you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I love callers keeping us on point. Um, this is a great question. So the the bill will get us uh, – this is a bit of a – I'm going to give you just the straight answer. So – President Biden has committed the U.S. to reducing emissions 50 percent below their all-time high by 2030. This bill gets us to 40 percent, about 40 percent. Modelers say that state, local, corporate, and the EPA action can get us that last 10 percent of the, the way, and it's going to be much easier for us to actually you know, pass new state laws and pass, you know, new EPA rules on carbon emissions, because this bill makes everything, it makes complying with all those laws, new laws and regulations, much cheaper and easier for companies to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, this bill gets us, if, if you compare to kind of what we think the status quo path will be, this bill gets us about two thirds of the way to meeting Biden's goal. Um, and so we will need more action to fill in that last third. But there was no policy on the table Previously, you know, three weeks ago when it looked like we weren't going to get any bill, there was no policy to get us that two thirds. And now there is a policy. Um, And so we're much closer. It's actually a hard question to say, does that put us on the 1.5 C path? Um, You know, which is the kind of near term when we really, really start to feel the very bad effects of climate change by the middle of the century. Uh, The way that the IPCC talks about it is that by the middle of the century, the richest countries would need to reach net zero, would need to have net zero carbon emissions by 2050. I think getting to 50% by 2030, if not earlier, by the way, if, you know, what would be best if the U.S. got to net zero by 2045. I think getting to 50% by 2030, um, it, it, it puts us on the path to, <laughs> to that. And by the way, we'll, because of the, some of the ways this policy is structured, it will make it cheaper for every other country to reduce its emissions as well. So not enough, but the best thing we've had yet. Part two uh, of the energy provisions of the bill, clean fuel section 13201 on biodiesel and renewable diesel tax credits. Yeah. Okay. Um, It extends. 
biodiesel renewable diesel <laughs> renewable fuel tax credits to 2024 um and to skip ahead slightly to section section uh, section 13203 um after 2024 um well let me it extends kind of existing biodiesel renewable diesel credits into the future these are diesel these are fuels liquid fuels made with um plants or other mm -hmm. you know uh, organic inputs um I think part of what we're seeing in these sections are kind of the existing, very technology-specific tax credits and subsidy system that exists is just getting pushed forward a few years because that's the easiest way while the government sets up new subsidies. And one of those new subsidies, right, the, this aviation fuels, right? Is, yes, is yes. The, I so think that's 13203. Section 13203. <laughs> so this creates a new tax credit for sustainable aviation fuels. Basically, it pays airlines or any any entity that's fueling airplanes um one dollar and 25 cents times a certain formula uh for each gallon of sustainable that is low to zero, no carbon fuel that it puts into an airplane and is then used mm -hmm. so it's a tax credit kind of meant to scale up and help airlines go from right now where they basically have no low to zero carbon fuels in uh, their planes, they can kind of start to mix it into the fuel mix mm -hmm. and it will compensate them more and, in fact, has a kind of sliding scale um, as we proceed into the future. And what's important is I don't think there's an end date to this provision. And so this is just a new across-the-board sustainable aviation mix. And the last thing I'd say is sustainable aviation fuels are very important because air travel really requires very energy-dense liquid fuels. And right now we only know how to make those by using oil, by using fossil fuels. And so this is one of those areas where the bill is investing in emissions reductions almost post-2030. It's trying to set up a world where we will know how to decarbonize air travel as opposed to the world we have today where we just have some guesses and we kind of need to keep investing money in them. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't know what to make of a provision like 13204, which is about clean hydrogen. I mean, it kind of strikes me that this is sort of the you, you, the policy reflection of that idea of all of the above energy solutions that were sort of like, <laughs> you know, hydrogen has been a dream since, I mean, many listeners, I'm sure, remember uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about the hydrogen highway and, and things like that. And it's not really a huge part of many people's current plans for how uh, our, our solutions for climate change but it seems like this is like a small bet, like we need to like keep this around just in case. Yeah, so a few things. So the first is that this is one of those provisions that was really important for winning mansion support. You know, mm. he's very big into hydrogen, um, in part because there are various ways to make low-carbon hydrogen that still make use of natural gas. And so he's very excited about those. Um, but I'd also say, you know, if you think about the whole bill, there's a very, there's a, varying set of strategies it takes. Some, like the renewable energy tax credits and other tax credits we'll talk about later, are set on reducing emissions during the 2020s, basically taking technologies we already have that are pretty cheap, making them cheaper, and driving as many emissions out of the system as we can. Others are looking to 2030 and post-2030 and saying, how can we solve problems in climate change we don't know how to solve? Hydrogen is one of those. So hydrogen is going to 
be very important, actually, for decarbonizing industry, which by 2030 could be the most carbon-intensive sector in the U.S. economy. It could generate high heat for cement, aluminum, and gas production. Um, it, it could be important for steel production. Um, in the bipartisan infrastructure law, the government set up a lot of demonstration facilities to kind of build the first set of hydrogen facilities. This, These tax credits are going to take the nascent hydrogen hubs that were set up in the bipartisan law and let them commercialize. It's going to create an early market for those hydrogen companies. And so if there is a hydrogen industry to, hydrogen industry to build in the U.S., these tax credits are going to get us from kind of its infancy into its maturity. Yeah. Maybe we can do, in a really quick way, the clean energy and efficiency incentives which are in part three, which are mostly about people's homes, right? Um, heat pumps, windows, doors, rooftop solar, that kind of stuff. Yep, exactly. So this is a set. This is a 30% subsidy for homeowners. Uh, it's going to cover up to $1,200 per year and up to $600 per item for a whole set of changes you can make to your house that will reduce emissions from your house. So replacing a natural gas heater with a heat pump, replacing an HVAC uh, or a heater with a heat pump, putting in a heat pump uh, water heater, all these things that take appliances in your home that right now use fossil fuels like natural gas and switches them to electric because the whole point of the bill is we're going to decarbonize the electric system and then move to the rest. It's kind of amazing to see. I, I mean, one of the things that I just want to reflect on as you're going through all these policies is that sometimes the climate movement and climate policy has seemed in, in such disarray. And then as you sort of lay out all these things in the way that they sort of lock together with other components of legislation, it just kind of seems like policymakers, there, there's like a competence that's coming through in this, which I think maybe is surprising to people. <laughs> well, I think one thing is we just haven't done this before and now we're going to do it. And so every idea we wanted to pass into legisl legislation for the past 20 years We've had a lot of time to think about it. Now it's all in this bill. <laughs> um, we are talking about the massive climate change bill going through provisions. We're joined by Robinson Meyer, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the newsletter, The Weekly Planet. What questions do you have about the bill? We're going to get to some comments. We've also got a, a bunch more callers. But we really are trying to work through so you know what's actually in this really milestone legislation that many people think is going to be a, a law very soon. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply, not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
I'm Alexis Madrigal. Welcome back to Forum. We're going through the provisions of the climate change bill that passed out of the Senate this weekend with Rob Meyer, a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the newsletter, The Weekly Planet. Um, okay, Rob, we're on part four, clean vehicles. There's a new uh, clean vehicle credit. Yeah, and we should say uh, there's a ton of other credits. We didn't talk about 30% investment tax credit, like boost for rooftop solar, batteries, geothermal, everything in your home. Every, they, there's the same tax credit for commercial facilities. And now we're on to clean vehicles. Okay. One of the biggest provisions in the bill. Um, This establishes a new clean vehicle credit for EVs mostly, but it also applies to hydrogen, but it's mostly going to affect for clean VEs available at the point of sale, which previous EV tax credits did not do. Um, Which just makes it easier. to. It makes it easier. It's a coupon. It actually makes it easier for lower income people to access the tax credit because previously you needed tax liability as large as the credit to like get the discount. Now it will just come off the top credit. Um, the way this tax credit is structured is basically it, it can go up to $7,500 per vehicle. Um, but half of that requires, there's kind of a sliding scale. You have to make a certain amount of the battery and the components in the vehicle hmm. in North America. The other half of that probably no automaker is going to meet immediately and it says a certain percentage of the critical minerals in the bill it sorry in the that's like the rare rare earth the rare earth the lithium they have to come from either the united states or a country with whom the united states has a free trade agreement um that's going to mean that for the first two years this tax credit probably applies to most vehicles at thirty three thousand seven hundred fifty dollars um but that is actually going to be more than it would otherwise because the way the old EV tax credit was structured, it phased out after an automaker sold a certain number of cars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then we've got, um, I'm going to skip us ahead. We've got, uh, there's now a used uh, clean vehicle tax credit, which is yep, going to be helpful again for. Huge deal it, uh, for people below $75,000, families making less than $150,000. Once every three years, um, it's a new tax credit that basically gives you a discount on a used car. I have to say, this is one of those areas where the U.S. is now rocketing ahead of other countries. I think only France has a used EV tax credit. Um, it, it may not even be France. So we are now suddenly like at the forefront of EV policy, not the laggard. Mm-hmm. We've got a uh, commercial vehicle credit, um, which you know does the less same things, but on commercial side. Garbage, and then we've got trucks, this ambulances, exactly. Right. And then we've Amazon got this trucks. EV charging credit, which is about installing EV infrastructure right in low-income areas. Yeah, exactly. So if you live in a r- low-income or rural area and you install a a charger, um, and you install it with a, you know, you, you pay a union wage, it will cover 30% of the cost of installing that charger. Um, when we, we're now at part five, clean manufacturing, and we have clean energy manufacturing investment credits, right? And this is a, another one of these things that it seems like the, the Mark of Mansion is upon it. The Mark of Mansion, but also post-2030, post-2030 reductions. These are, these are tackling emissions reductions in the system. I have to say... <laughs> These are policies meant to revive the American manufacturing industry and point it at producing low-carbon technologies. And so there's really two different... I'm going to talk about Section 13501 and Section 13502 at the same time. 13501 revives this old mansion credit, which where the government will subsidize up to 30% of the cost of a facility, of, of a new factory, um, if it is producing, manufacturing, recycling, and advanced energy technology, which is like the catch-all for technologies we need to have to to um, 
by climate change. That that 30% subsidy is actually larger if you build it in certain census tracts, you know, where a coal mine has been. At the same time, there's another new tax credit called 45X, where the government will subsidize every unit of production of all these components you need for EVs, for solar uh, photovoltaics, for mining certain critical minerals, um, all of that the government will now subsidize for for offshore wind, you know, turbine blades. Mm-hmm. The government will subsidize those on a per unit basis. And so what you can see here is the government is trying to basically de-risk the entire industrial sector for companies to come in and really feel comfortable investing here and comfortable building a homegrown, you know, clean tech industry. In some ways, a lot of these policies are things we used to do in the U.S. before the 1970s for various kind of strategic industries. And they're things that China has been doing lately. So in some ways, we're kind of learning from what we used to do to try to establish a a, a new clean tech manufacturing industry in the U.S. But I think these are a really big deal. I mean, a lot of these facilities could be unionized. And when we think about where future change is going to come from, there are going to be many, many working class people, or there could be if the bill is implemented well, whose lives are changed, whose entire livelihood comes from these provisions and could really affect climate policy down the line. Yeah. Let's skip ahead to part seven, which are new clean energy initiatives. These are about like producing their clean electricity production tax credits. Yeah, and, and this is the most emissions reducing policy in the bill. And if remember we talked there were these old technology specific renewable credits we were talking about earlier in the show. They end at twenty twenty five and then we get these new it's called the Clean Electricity Production Tax Credit and the Clean Electricity Investment Tax Credit. And the way it works is that if you are opening a facility that produces zero carbon electricity, you can choose when you open that facility to either have the government subsidize 30% of its cost, which could go up if you meet certain requirements that we've been talking about, mm-hmm. or it pays you 2.5 cents per kilowatt hour for the first 10 years for every, every unit of electricity that you produce and sell to the grid. And so you get to say as a developer, um, what, which one is going to pay me more and then take it. What's really big about these provisions is that historically, the, tax, the renewable tax credits were just very wonky. So, for instance, you could get the investment tax credit if you were a solar developer, but you could not get money for producing solar electricity. The other tax credit wasn't available to you. This says, whatever technology you have, we are going to pay you to produce it on the grid. And when University of Chicago economists looked at this provision, what they found is that the benefits of this provision are like three to four times more than the cost, partially mm-hmm. because it's so open-ended and, and, and so technology neutral. Um, and they were like, we get happy about climate policy if, it's, if, the, if the benefits exceed costs by like 1.5 times. You know, three to four X is really unheard of. So, um, we are getting a bunch of different questions um, related to, uh, we'll take a, an example. Gregory writes, can the climate funding provisions be reversed if Republicans get Congress back in November? It seems like Congress has the power to make every crazy rule they want. <laughs> so, I mean, as always, Congress can do whatever it wants. Um, and, and I'm reporting the story now. I, I think what we've seen is that Congress has historically been a, a little reluctant to roll back these provisions. Um, it will be very bad press for Republicans, which I, I realize doesn't sound that 
compelling. But, you know, Republicans might hate these provisions because Democrats passed them, but they mean a lot to companies, including some oil companies, for various reasons. And those companies will fight back against the repeal. And so um, some of them can be reversed by Republicans. They're just budgetary measures. But um, when those negotiations happen, uh, Democrats will have some leverage, too, at, at least as long as they control the White House. And even after that, you know, Democrats got some budget priorities through during the Trump budgets when there was a Republican trifecta. So, yes, they can be reversed. Congress can do anything it wants. But, you know, Congress can always do anything it wants. <laughs> and um, I think once it, it, once passed, these provisions are going to be harder to repeal in yeah. some ways like Obamacare. I want to bring in uh, Guillermo from San Leandro has a question about forestry. Hey, Guillermo. Hey, good morning, and thank you for taking my phone call. Uh, The question that I have is, there is any credits for companies who will start to reforest stations using technology uh, by implementing in areas where the fires have been taken, and, you know, we need trees to clean the atmosphere. So is this, this is something that the is in a bill or can be something that the state can adopt it and say, well, the federal government is doing this. We are going to do this part. Mm-hmm. So we have a more clean air and uh, pull pollution out of the air a little bit more faster by putting more trees on the ground. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's there's really kind of three different sets of kind of programs in the bill. Um, the first is that there's $1.8 billion for the national forest system to reduce fuels and this is more on the forest fire side, to reduce fuels on the wildland urban interface. That's These are kind of direct kind of wildfire prevention policies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's open-ended about how, we, how they do that. Um, the second is that it will pay. There are competitiveness grants to, um, to, to states, to private forestry owners, to tribal governments, to keep forests that they already have around and to not deforest them. Um, and separately, there is $1.5 billion in grants to states, um, local governments, and tribal governments or nonprofits to plant trees. And so that's the kind of big tree planting initiative that I, I think uh, you're talking about, Guillermo. Yep. Yep. That's right. A um, couple other things, you know, that people have had questions about. Um, what are provisions for sort of um, climate resilience? Like, you know, for example, I mean, you know, we, we talked about fires at the wildland urban interface. That's a good one for Californians and, and everybody who lives uh, in, in the Bay Area. But what about coastal communities, too? Are there are there provisions for that? Yeah, there are. So um, there is a, a new program that will give basically allow um, HUD, allow the Federal Housing Agency to write up to four billion dollars in loans to kind of do anything that increases climate resilience. And so that is both um, both kind of addressing natural disasters, but also about improving indoor air quality or um, electrifying buildings. There's also a whole set of other programs that will pay uh, landlords or homeowners to retrofit their, their homes to use less electricity, uh, though that's a little unrelated. Also, there is two six two point six billion dollars to NOAA, um, the Weather mm-hmm. and Climate Agency, to help coastal states, including California, protect and restore coastal and marine habitats to enhance resilience. Um, 
there's a lot of money to know to keep researching how to increase coastal resilience and you know weather resilience and climate resilience generally um and uh oh one more yeah uh oh, 60201 3 billion dollars in environmental and climate justice block grants right yes exactly so i would almost put this under a separate provision but um there's a there's a huge amount of money. There's six billion dollars. There's the largest investment in environmental justice ever to both help communities that are kind of on the front lines of climate change, but also to help communities that have experienced the brunt of, you know, fossil fuel extraction. Um, the government. The it also the bill also restores Superfund funding, like Superfund restoration funding. Yeah. So there's a lot. You know, um, a couple of b- broader questions here. I mean, one is on the on the approach itself. One criticism that I have heard is that this kind of locks us into a car oriented urban system, right? That this that it, more subsidies for electric vehicles, but not for say electric bikes or some of uh, some of these other things that are about remaking our, our cities that it locks us into a path that we we don't want to be on. What do you think? Yeah, so it it absolutely does. um, Oh, man, my little... It it absolutely does lock us... Subsidize EV ownership Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, like, just the whole EV system a lot. I would say it also includes $1.9 billion in grants... um, to improve walkability, safety, and affordable transportation access, um, and to mitigate or kind of remove bad effects from transportation infrastructure, so that's highways. So it is trying to attack to improve walkability and kind of the urban street fund at the same time, and there's almost $2 billion for that. What I'd add is also the bipartisan infrastructure law and the American Rescue Plan um, included a lot of money for public transit. Kind of that's where the public transit money was. Um, the big investments. And so this bill doesn't tackle that, partially because the federal government just wrote multi-billion dollar checks to transit agencies around the country. Yeah. Um, there's also a lot of questions coming in about the timeline of the impact here. Joe, for example, writes, how quickly will we experience the impact of this bill? Will it be like the Telecommunications Act or Brown v. Board of Education? And can local government sandbag the implementation? So... This is a this is a good question. Um, uh, some effects of this bill will be felt quite rapidly. Um, a lot of the subsidies are retroactive to this year. So actually, if you got a heat pump installed in your home this year, you will be able to take the tax credit. Um, other subsidies, I think, will really start to see the effect around 2024, 2025. Um you know, that's when we should start to see kind of massive uh, EV, you know, massive EV adoption or just kind of the energy system really switching over. I think that's when we could start seeing it in the emissions trajectory of the country. Um, local governments might be able to sandbag some of this stuff, especially around transmission, you know, electricity transmission, which is a very, very important part of building an electricity grid that has more renewables on it. That's one reason that Senator Manchin, as part of his deal to pass this bill, also made Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer promise to bring up a separate bill later this year that will relieve some of the permitting constraints on transmission, but also on fossil fuel infrastructure. This is another one of those compromises in the bill. So there is going to be another bill later this year that could actually take some power away from local governments to sandbag renewables. The question is going to be, 
do environmentalists, do Democrats think it ultimately takes also power away from local governments to prevent fossil fuel development from coming in? Um, um, I don't have time to to grab your call, Eileen and Fairfax, but I want to uh, pose the question to Rob, which is, does this bill have any food industry specific provisions or, or anything that I, I don't I don't think I've seen anything. There in are very large provisions to agriculture, uh-huh. basically to kind of have farms and local farm offices start studying how we can conserve more carbon within the soil. Mm -hmm. That's really important because a lot of soil carbon removal is going to be really region-specific and depend on kind of the climate of one region of the country to another. They should get some of that funded. What there isn't are, say, consumer subsidies for, like, Beyond Meat and the meat alternatives in the same way that there's subsidies for, say, EVs or heat pumps Mm -hmm. or rooftop solar. Last uh, timeline question. Lauren writes, my household is planning to install a heat pump in the next few weeks, then install solar panels and next year purchase an electric car. Is there a recommended timeline for optimizing tax credits? There needs to be a website. <laughs> there needs to be a single serving website, Rob. I know. I know. <laughs> I know, Alexis. Um, uh, I think on a heat pump, you're fine this year. <laughs> I think on EVs, there's the, the question on EVs is whether you can find a, a any EV that is going to be able to use that full $7,500 credit, that means minerals are going to be coming from the U.S., not just the battery is made here. There, there's no guide to that right now. Um, but in terms of installing a heat pump this year, you should be fine because the tax credit is actually retroactive. Man, Rob Meyer, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> I I can't believe you actually agreed to walk through the provisions of a 700-page bill with us. Um, we but got I a hope... surprising amount done, too. We got a surprising amount we done. We basically are... got yeah. the largest emissions reducing Yes, there are a bunch of things, out. just so people know. Department of Energy loan program, transmission, industrial facilities, national labs money, uranium. Public there finance. are a few other things, but we got to so, so much of it. Multifamily retrofits, yep, exactly. Yes, it's that. been a pleasure. Yes. We have been talking about the massive climate change bill that actually made it through the Senate this past weekend. And we have been joined by Robinson Meyer, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the excellent newsletter, The Weekly Planet. Thank you so much again, Rob. Thanks, man. Thank you for having me. Let's get to here. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.